Recovery Elevator, Episode 11. I'm going to just drink on the weekends. And then, of course, Sunday would turn into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So that didn't work. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety app on my iPhone, I have been sober for seven months, three weeks, four days, 12 hours, 51 minutes, and 19 seconds. Oh my gosh, and check this out. I've also not consumed 950 alcoholic beverages and saved $3,325.51 since September 7th, 2014 is when I decided to quit drinking. On today's podcast, I'm going to talk about a dry drunk, explain what it is and how it's not enough just to simply not drink. I've got Ella from On Air with Ella. She is going to talk to us about how getting in the right mindset is imperative to your recovery. I've also got Mora on the podcast who's been sober for nine months. And this is the second time we did this interview because after the first interview, I wanted to hear more. Let's talk about a dry drunk. First off, what the heck is a dry drunk? That really makes no sense to me. Somebody who's dry, not wet, or not drinking, yet they're still a drunk? I don't really understand that. Basically, a dry drunk is a slang expression in the recovery community that describes somebody who simply just doesn't drink. And that was myself from January 1st, 2010 to roughly about two and a half years later after that when I relapsed. I was a dry drunk and I almost made it two and a half years. My plan was simply not drink. That was my program, not drink. Sweep everything under the rug, not talk about it. Don't open up to anybody. Completely deny that I had a drinking problem. I just didn't drink. At first, being a dry drunk was pretty cool. I lost weight. My thoughts were more clear. There was this mental fog that just disappeared. And that is also called a pink cloud. But like any storm front of clouds and sunshine, it eventually blows through. After about six months of this pink cloud, my recovery was regressing. I was simply not drinking, but the mental disease, alcoholism, was progressing. I wasn't addressing the root of the problem. And life temporarily got better in the pink cloud, but eventually it went downhill. My life did not get better. And then I relapsed. I got back on my old program of just not drinking, and that lasted for about 10 more months. But I still said, I got it. I'm in control of this. And my dry drunk program only garnered me two weeks, four days, 21 days, three hours. I got 42 days of sobriety at one point. It wasn't until November or December of 2013 that I said, all right, my program of being a dry drunk is not cutting it. And although I think I'm the most brilliant guy in the entire world, and I'm sure you also think you're the most intelligent human being that you know, but you need to realize one thing. It's your ideas. It was my ideas and best thinking practices and principles that had put me in the current situation that I was in. Keyword was in. My program today looks a lot different. And this podcast is a big part of my program. And you guys are all part of my program, which I am so thankful for. Now, no one really wants to admit they're a dry drunk. So here are two things that might help you indicate if you are a dry drunk. Number one, a sober alcoholic who has made no internal emotional or behavioral changes. 
Essentially, the only difference in this individual is the absence of alcohol. The second one, an alcoholic who simply doesn't drink. Again, that's their program, not drinking. They don't involve any 12-step programs. They don't talk actively with other alcoholics. They don't attend AA meetings. They don't keep this progressive disease of the mind in check. Even though you're not drinking, the mental disease of alcoholism is still moving forward and the addiction is still doing laps, getting stronger. So basically, a dry drunk is someone who has, number one, made no emotional or behavioral changes, and number two, they simply don't drink. They don't work any program. And here are six other characteristics of a dry drunk. You're selfish. We are all extremely selfish, and we think we are in total control at all times. Basically, we are beating the system, and we are playing God or we are our own higher power. There's a mighty big blue book, and on page 61, it explains this a lot better than I can. But you are not in control of the situation. You don't got it. You don't have it under wraps. And yeah, you can beat the system for one night, for one week, maybe for a month. I beat the system for almost two and a half years. But in the end, I didn't beat the system. You can't go to Las Vegas and keep winning. You eventually will lose. Number two, My Way or the Highway, which is one of my favorite 80s songs by Tom Cochran. That's right. A dry drunk and another characteristic of an alcoholic, we're spontaneous. We have impulsive behavior. Again, this branches off our selfishness characteristic defect is we don't take others into consideration when making decisions. It's only me. I'm king and I'm the only one that matters. Third characteristic of a dry drunk, the blah. What that means, if you are working a dry drunk program and life just starts to get blah, things are just starting to get mundane and boring. This routine that I talk about is so important to sobriety. It is, and I'm loving my routine, but my routine as a dry drunk got pretty old. Life was just losing its jazz. The fourth characteristic of a dry drunk, we start to forget. Our brains are chemically wired to forget the bad things that happen to us or else we would never get over world conflicts, world wars. Countries just wouldn't forget about this stuff. We forget about how bad it was. If I'm not working a program, I personally forget how miserable the situation was in July when I called my parents crying saying, I think I need to go to rehab. I'm starting to forget that stuff. But with working with other alcoholics in this podcast, I'm constantly reminded. I'm actually telling myself when I listen to this podcast, those are some pretty crappy times that I don't want to go back to. And I don't ever want to forget them. I don't want to be motivated in my recovery by fear of going back to those terrible moments. I want to be sober for a hope of a better life, but I cannot forget all the crap and the terrible things that I experienced due to my alcohol addiction. Fifth characteristic of a dry drunk, Sunsets just aren't that magnificent anymore. What I'm referring to is your hobbies and your passions and what you like to do in life. They just aren't that appealing anymore. You start to distance yourself and your relationships with your friends and your family start to suffer. You need to keep this stuff in check. Sure, you might have a bad day and you don't want to do and you don't want to go on a hike or a run and do the things you love to do. But if this behavior persists over a long period of time, it's probably a characteristic of a dry drunk. The sixth characteristic negativity. 
Some people are just more negative than others. Some people are more positive than others. But if you find yourself continuously being a negative person, you're probably exhibiting behaviors of a dry drunk. And the last one, number seven of my list of characteristics of a dry drunk that I exhibit this behavior the most, I currently do and did, my thoughts, they are batshit crazy. And I've got to keep them in check all the time. Right around the two-year mark when my program of being a dry drunk, my thoughts were just that, crazy. I would get a negative thought in my head and it would fester for a day, for a week, even for a month. And this is where the plot really thickens. And I'm planting seeds, that's all I'm doing, because we are going to have full podcast episodes dedicated to these topics. This whole alcoholism thing, alcoholic-ish deal, this is a thinking disease. It's not a drinking disease. And the other thing that I'm still trying to wrap my head around, drinking is but a symptom. This is a thinking disease, not a drinking disease. That's why I'm throwing these things in subtly on episode 11. If I were to say this on episode one, and I was an alcoholic thinking about quitting drinking, I would say, uh, okay, I'm done. Stop listening and moved on. But this is a complicated beast. Now, you can still be working a program and being a dry drunk. And that can only be gauged by yourself. Like I said, in November or December of 2013, I had come to the realization that my program of being dry drunk just sucked. It didn't work for me. So I decided to add minor changes. I started to read the big book. I started to talk with other alcoholics. I contemplated getting a sponsor. And so I was working part of a program, but I still was a dry drunk. The program they had created didn't work for me. And there's a lot on the line. So I just kept adding things into my program. And that's where the podcast came in. This is a vital part of my program. And even though I am working with alcoholics on a nonstop basis, I still have to keep my batshit thoughts in check. And if they persist for more than a couple hours or more than a couple days, I need to put off things from my schedule and dedicate time and energy to the problem at hand. It's my thinking. And next up, we're going to have Ella on the podcast. In Recovery Elevator, I have Ella with us on the podcast. Now, Ella is not an alcoholic. She is a fitness and nutrition expert. And I say expert in my own opinion because she does not claim to be an expert in this, but she has a podcast that's called On Air with Ella, and I'll let her explain more about that. But her podcast is about fitness, nutrition, and mindset right? And we're going to focus on the third part of that title is mindset and how being in the proper and the correct mindset gives you the best chances of being sober because it's not just about quitting drinking. In fact, that's just a fraction of the whole complex equation. So Ella, how are you doing today? Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm really good. Thanks for taking the time. I understand right now you are in the Grand Cayman Islands. Is that correct? <laughs> I am indeed. Don't tell anybody, okay? I'm, I'm probably supposed to be working. But yeah, I snuck down here for a couple of days. Absolutely. Well, Ella, I'm just going to let you take it. Take it from here and, and talk to us about your podcast, right? And then go into the importance of being in the right mindset, right? And that can you know, briefly expand just about fitness, nutrition. And again, listeners, Ella, I want to have her back on the show for about five, every five to 10 episodes to touch base with her for quick snippets of how to get in the best mindset, be it fitness tips or nutrition tips. That was a lot right there, Ella. I'm just going to let you take it from here. 
Paul, first, I want to acknowledge what you're doing. And it's an honor, actually, to be able to speak to your audience. And it means a great deal to me. So if I can say anything that's of any value to your audience, then that is a humbling honor for me. So thank you for that opportunity. Now, a couple of things. I hope you were making those little air quotes when you called me an expert. (laughs) Because guys, my show on air with Ella is all about starting where you are, using what you have and doing what you can. And my whole spin is that I am so not an expert. I am a woman who struggles. I am a woman who eats and moves and breathes and has a lot of responsibilities. And I'm trying to talk to other people who are there and just saying, how can we move the needle in our own lives from where we are right now a little bit more toward extraordinary? So my show is not for people who have 6% body fat and they're trying to get to 3% body fat. You know what I'm saying, Paul? (laughs) So it's not for me. Okay. (laughs) Just kidding. It's definitely for me. Get off my show, Paul. Um, (laughs) In fact, I struggled with the fitness, nutrition, and mindset thing because what you'll find is so many of the people that I'm talking to, yeah, they might come at it from a fitness or nutrition lens, but at the end of the day, all of my shows end up in mindset. And the reason I'm telling you that is because everything we do, like we can't get off the ground if we can't get our mind in the right place, right? I mean, somebody was interviewing Richard Branson and with everything that Richard Branson, you know, the creator of Virgin and roughly 1 million other companies, somebody was interviewing him and said, okay, what? boil it all down, your success, boil it all down to one kernel, one nugget to share with the world. And you know what he said, Paul? I know you know, because you were there, right? (laughs) Let's hear it. Tell me though again. He said, work out, full stop. And they're like, um, dude, you founded like a hundred extraordinarily successful global companies and your number one piece of business advice is to work out. And Richard Branson said, you can't get your body right till you get your mind right. When your mind's right, you want to invest in your body. That's how you know. And no success in the world means jack if your mind and your body aren't where you need them to be. Like what, what good is success if you're dead? Um, what good is success if you're unhappy, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I sort of take that philosophy into, um, my world, but the, the most important thing on that three legged stool is definitely kind of where your head is at. So yeah, I'd love to talk to that just a little bit. And Ella, exactly that. Let's talk about how getting in the right mindset will give our listeners the best chance to A, quit drinking, and B, maintain a successful recovery. Well, and Paul, you know, Paul and I are buddies, guys, and Paul and I talked about this. And I said, you know, Paul, I'm not qualified to speak to alcoholism. And through our conversation, we both realized that so many of the things that I struggle with and that my audience struggle with are so similar in principle to the struggles of addiction. A lot of people that I talk with and work with are addicted to food or they're addicted to binge eating or they're addicted to hating themselves or they're addicted to negative self-talk, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of the day, all of these addictions are supported by habits. And all of these habits are supported by patterns. And all of these patterns come from our mindset. And that's universal, folks. So that is not limited. You know, pick your addiction, fill in the blank. We're all walking the same walk. So couple things. One of the things that I fundamentally believe, and this is the hypothesis that I work from. So And this is really, really hard to appreciate when you're struggling with something as big as addiction. It's really hard to appreciate this. 
but that doesn't make it less true. And that is this. I fundamentally believe that you were designed to be extraordinary. Inherently innate in the fabric of your molecular structure, you were designed to be extraordinary. And I think a lot of little kids manifest that, and you can see that. But stuff happens, right? And life happens, and our parents happen, or our families happen, or our experience happen, or you know, whatever we end up doing to ourselves and letting in. And we forget that. And at the end of the day, no matter what your struggle is, if something in your universe can ping that cord inside of you, because it's still in there, no matter where you are in your journey, if something can ping that cord in you that reminds you or maybe tells you for the first time, maybe nobody ever made you feel this way, you were designed to be extraordinary. So let's remember that and let's operate from that place for just a moment and the things you can do from that place and the things that accepting that for one brief moment in time, the things that that can lead you to um, can can really be life altering. So I don't believe if I'm talking to someone who's listening to your show, Paul, who, which is such a service to so many people, if I could look one of these guys or ladies in the eye, I would say, you know what? Your alcoholism, it is not the most interesting thing about you. It is not the most, it's not the biggest thing about you. It feels like it, right? It feels so big. It feels like the biggest rock and you can't move it. And if I could be of any value in the world, it would be to bring the right people, um, the right experts or people like you. You've been on my show. Thank you very much. And bring them in front of people and crack, just take a little chip out of that rock and just be like, that's not who you are. That's not the most interesting, amazing, or largest thing about you. Ella, what you just said is what I've said in almost every other podcast episode is being an alcoholic does not define us or especially me. Being an alcoholic is just who I am. It's what I do after the fact and moving this day forward. So you're right. Me being an alcoholic is not the most interesting thing about me. It is not my focal point. It's not who I am to the core. It is who I am <laughs> superficially, but it's what I do after the fact. So yeah, and and on September 7th, Ella, that is when I had my last drink. But a couple weeks before that, probably three weeks before that, I had put very small actions into place in regards to fitness and nutrition. And then when September 7th hit, I had a different mindset that I had never been in before. I had always been able to get three, four, five days of sobriety, maybe even 14 days on a lucky occasion. But eventually, I would relapse. I would slip up. But with just some small fitness and nutrition changes in my own personal lifestyle, I've maintained almost eight months of sobriety, which is incredible. So Ella, I know you're busy. You're in the Grand Cayman Islands. I don't want to hold you up on your vacation. Give us just a couple small nuggets. And again, you're not an expert. To me, you are. Of how people can real quick, just in their morning or throughout the day, very quickly get into a better mindset. Yeah, 100%. I will break it down to some brass tacks. So a couple of things. The first thing to do is to set small, small incremental goals. And I think you can speak to this better than I do, and you probably do, Paul. But we're not talking like, I'm going to go sign up for this race, or I'm going to clean up my diet entirely. We're talking, what are you doing today? What are you doing just today? And if today's too big, what is one, literally one thing you can do this morning that moves the needle a little bit away from 
where you are to where you want to be. And that can look like a walk. It can look like taking the dog for a walk. It can look like standing up instead of sitting down. It can be um, taking every single phone call you make that day, standing up. It can be something that gets you in your body or gets you in your mind or helps you make a different choice about what you put in your mouth. So that's the first thing is small, small, small goals. And by the way, humans are so incentivized by reward and we don't appreciate the extent to which these little accomplishments add up in our mindset to to almost persuade us that we're capable of more. The second thing, uh, the second law, the second um, law of physics that applies there is momentum breeds momentum. An object in motion will stay in motion, right? So every little, just think of investing in your momentum. So if you get out and go walk around the block for five minutes, You've just created motion that will lead you into another motion that will lead you into another motion, et cetera. Or maybe that becomes a jog or whatever. You understand what I'm saying. So, so that's one thing is just literally start where you are, whatever that looks like for you, and just choose today. Don't worry about next week. Just choose today. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and you did a great show on your six tips for people. And so my second thing is go back and listen to Paul, listen to Paul's show with where he shares the six tips because you talk about how hydration and sleep are so important. And let me tell you something. If I heard that and I was in a place of real, real struggle, I would roll my eyes and be like, next. But the thing is, your body is like 60 to 75% water. And when we don't throw down a bunch of water, everything in our body is more lethargic. It's obviously dehydrated, but it's, uh, it's more lethargic. So it actually just makes you feel like crap. So if you knew that it would actually physically and mentally make you feel better to chug a liter of water, you know, once or twice or three times a day, um, it, it's like, it's right there within reach, you know, that, that, um, quick, easy, cheap, free resources right there. Okay. The last thing that I will say is that <laughs> this is, a little Jedi mindset trick that I play in my own head all the time because I'm very candid about the fact that I'm struggling myself. We're all struggling trying to be the best versions of ourselves, right? And one of my Jedi mind tricks for you is a lot of us play tapes in our head, or maybe you don't think of it that way, but there's a message reel and you're playing it in your head every day. And it's either telling you something good or it's telling you something bad. And there is an interesting law about our own brains. There is no room in your head at the same time for playing the tragedy, trauma, sad movie reel and the hero's journey at the same time. Your mind can't play both movies at the same time. So I want you guys to consider what your hero's journey looks like and spend a little time playing that tape. So that can be dreaming about where you want to be. It can be um, envisioning what it would feel like to be in a healthy, like robust body that's healthy and sexy and physical and feels good to be in. And picture that you, it's in there, right? Um, Or spend a moment in gratitude because gratitude will crowd out fear faster than anything else. It's like a magic little pill, gratitude. So just just food for thought for now, Paul, is how can you spend a little time playing the hero's journey to, to crowd out the melodrama that some of us deal with sometimes? 
LS Solid Gold, but before our listeners have to wait five episodes, 10 episodes before we hear you again, <laughs> how can we find out about more about you and, and how do we find your podcast? The show is called On Air with Ella. I'm Ella. I bring a lot of different people on who are doing, here's my criteria for bringing on a guest, somebody who's doing something better than we are. It can be anything. So I would encourage your listeners to go and listen to episode nine with Hal Elrod. I would encourage your listeners to go on and listen to episode 14 with my former Marine and now civilized caveman, George Bryant. And I think what you'll see is this is not another fitness podcast, what I call a kale and squats podcast, Paul, like eat more <laughs> kale, do more squats. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not kale and squats. It's, uh, um, at the end of the day, people who come at it from this lens, um, a fitness, nutrition and wellness, but we always end up on mindset. So thanks for letting me share that. Yeah, no problem. It's funny. You mentioned episode nine, Hal how Elrod, that is the reason why I woke up at five 30 this morning and we'll be doing so every day from here on forward. Again, it's one day at a time, but that's the plan. And before this podcast interview, Ella and I were speaking. She says, how can I relate to your audience? I said, Ella, we're really doing the same thing. Our podcasts are broadcasting a better way of life. Yours might be with fitness and nutrition and not aimed towards alcoholics, but it's really the same thing. They're both analogous. And Ella, thank you so much for joining me today. Don't get too much sun down there, okay? Paul, you bet. It's it's my honor. Thanks so much. And thanks, everybody, for listening. I know that Ella is not an alcoholic, but there are still a lot of takeaways from her interview. The number one thing is you've got to be in a good mindset before you can really sober up and be successful in recovery. Now, let's hear from Mora. And Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome Mora to the podcast. How are you, Mora? I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Let's get right into it. Mora, how long have you been sober? Well, I was just uh, thinking about that, and it's been um, almost nine months. Nine months. Congratulations. And Yes, thank you. When did you realize that your elevator had finally reached its bottom, and it was time to stop it and just get off and stop drinking? Um, well, it was this past summer um, in June at one of my son's baseball games that I realized that I needed to not be drunk at any of his uh, sporting events anymore. And I went home one evening and continued drinking as I thought about it. <laughs> and the sure. next morning woke up and said, I can't do this anymore. And I need to um, stop drinking. And I stopped drinking. I mean, it, it sounds like it was a easy thing, but it was really difficult. And I had actually tried earlier that year to stop drinking. And um, instead of stopping drinking, I did the whole, oh, I can have one here and there, which led me right back into um, drinking all the time and drinking everywhere. So let's, my lowest, lowest point was definitely disappointing my children. Well, let's jump into the next question then. It sounds like you've tried to control or regulate or try quit drinking in, in, in different ways. Talk to me about different methods used in the past, like switching from tequila to only beer or not drinking before a certain time in the afternoon. And did that work for you? Yeah, well, I tried all those things. Um, switching booze wasn't a big one because I drank it all. It didn't matter when, how, or why. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would try to just, I would think, okay, I'm not going to drink during the week. I'm going to just drink on the weekends. 
And then, of course, Sunday would turn into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So that didn't work. Um, then I would try to only have one or two drinks, be it wine or whatever. You know, have one glass of wine with dinner rather than a bottle or two or three. Mm-hmm. Well, that just led into the same thing where I could never stop after one. So uh, earlier um, in 2014, I had tried. I did quit for probably about three weeks, maybe completely. But then I thought, okay, I can have one. And so it went right back, spiraled into the drinking every day, drinking all the time. And so then when I was, when I really hit my bottom was when I realized that I can't have one. Uh, one leads to a million. And um, it's, it's a hard thing to uh, admit to yourself that that is your problem and you have to um, be responsible and not even have one because you can't not have a million. Maura, I lost so. that battle 100 out of 100 times saying, <laughs> saying I'm only going to drink four or five tonight. And then I'd come home from the bars and I would look up at my parents' collection of just exquisite liquor and I would keep drinking. And like I said, I lost that battle every time and I found ways to justify it every time. And I'm sure oh, yeah. you found ways to justify it for yourself. I mean, tell me about that. How our minds will trick us in saying, well, it's a beautiful, sunny Saturday afternoon in Montana. I should probably be drinking. Oh, for sure. I mean, the, um, even when it snows here, you should be drinking, right? <laughs> Definitely. Everything, everything you do um, is, is, well, was for me associated with having a drink with it. And I could justify um, justify it any way I wanted to. Um, you know, it yeah, it just became such a justification. And the biggest fear was what was I going to do if I didn't have it? How was I going to cope with my life? How was I going to be social if I wasn't drinking? Um, if you don't have a drink in your hand, then you're no fun or all those things. So, of course, I justified it in the sense that I wanted to always be a fun person and have people around me. And what I found since I stopped drinking is the people that really were my closest friends are still with me and don't need it. I don't need to have a drink in my hand to be with them. The people that needed that, that I needed the drink in my hand to be with, I'm no longer with. So, <laughs> Oh, sure. And yeah, yeah, what would it be like without alcohol? How would I cope with normal daily situations without alcohol? And listeners, that's what courage in sobriety looks like. It's just facing the normal day life tasks without alcohol. And Maura, let me go back to that baseball game for a moment. What was okay. that like? I mean, how drunk were you? Were you, was everybody else in the stands drinking or were, were you Yeah, tell me more about that. Well, you know, honestly, I don't know if anyone else was drinking. I know I had my wine hidden in a water bottle. Um, well, I thought it was hidden. I'm sure everybody <laughs> knew what I was doing. Sure. <laughs> um, but I think I probably was on about a maybe the third bottle of wine um, of the evening. You know, I got in, I didn't drink while I was at work, so I'd gotten off work. I'd gotten everyone to the game, and then um, 
you know, baseball games go on for a while sometimes. And I think I was into my third bottle of white wine that afternoon, that evening. And um, I, I was probably pretty drunk. I just thought I was normal. You know, every, <laughs> it was just normal to me. But I did um, miss most of the game because I wasn't paying attention. And I think from what my son and my husband told me, he made two home runs in that game, of which I saw neither. And it really affected me in the sense that my son was only 11 at the time, and I really was checked out. I was not, I was not um, paying attention to anything except for myself. And uh, maybe I wasn't even paying attention to myself. So I was just totally checked out, and it really hit me hard that I wasn't there for my kids. And the other thing is, is that I'm a type one diabetic, and I drank a lot. And that I was not only going to check out mentally; I could kill myself very easily. Sure. Um, my health was deteriorating in the uh, way of my kidneys and my liver, and. Um, what I thought about was not only was I not there for my kids in their sports, but I wasn't going to be there in their lives at all if I didn't do something really different. So that was another uh, big bottom for me, too, was my health was deteriorating very rapidly. Sure. And I have notes taken for future podcast episodes about the detrimental and crushing effects that alcohol has on your system. But here's the interesting part. It doesn't matter to an alcoholic. You can be told by a medical professional, if you continue drinking, you will die. And that doesn't matter. So, No, more, you, you think that you're exempt from that. You don't think that that can't happen to me. You know, that me, you just don't, you don't think of the consequences as a reality. They're just something somebody says to threaten you with the fact that you need to quit. Yeah, and and nine months you've been doing this, Maura. That is amazing. Yeah. Nice job. Well, and my doctors are thrilled because I haven't been hospitalized. Um, I've been very healthy, and my family's very happy because I'm actually checked in instead of checked out. So it's it's been wonderful for us as a family as well, and friends. But my my kids and my husband are are just thrilled that I keep that I'm keep keeping on as my kids say so it sounds like you have a presence in sobriety and i'm referring to the two home runs your son's hit your son hit you just weren't there you didn't you know witness no. it and what is it yeah. like being present in the moment as a mother in sobriety it's wonderful um we had football season last fall and it was probably the first football season ever for my son that I didn't have a uh, bottle or a you know wine or a mimosa in a water bottle while at mm -hmm. a football game, and I got to see my son score a bunch of touchdowns. He's a running back. He's a really good football player, and I remember all of it instead of wow. not remembering a thing. And it, it was a wonderful football season. And then uh, he got into basketball, and um, his basketball team has never been that great, but. At least I watched the games this time rather sure. than just sitting in the back of a gym drinking. So, and my daughter, who's younger, um, is starting softball right now. Um, she's six and she's starting fast pitch softball. And I'm really excited because I played fast pitch in college. Sure. And so I'm thrilled to, uh, to be involved and checked in with, with what my kids are doing. 
because yeah, I've been so checked out most of their lives. So And sitting in the back of a gym drinking where there probably are signs that say no drugs and alcohol allowed oh, exactly, on the premise. <laughs> and, but if it's in a water bottle, they can't see it or, you know, a clear mm-hmm. container or whatever. And I've done the same thing, more. I know exactly oh, yeah. what you're getting at. Now, Maura, tell me about how your drinking has possibly affected relationships with family, friends, at work, a spouse, or did anybody ever suggest that you might drink too much? My husband, number one. Um, He's not a big drinker at all, and he also had a really good friend that uh, died of complications of type 1 diabetes at Mm -hmm. a young age due to drinking and type 1 diabetes, and he was always very worried that I wouldn't be around anymore. And he also didn't enjoy the social crowd that ended up at our house all the time um, while I was drinking because it was just always too much, too many, too much people, too many things going on. And he, he mentioned it time and time again. And it, if I had not stopped drinking, we would probably not be together anymore. And we've been together for 15 years and, um, I had to save myself, save my family, and save my marriage. And all those things are very important to me. And I love my husband deeply. And to lose him over something like this would, I probably would have just continued to drink myself to death because I, you know, wouldn't have. But the fact that I was able to really contemplate some things and and do it and not let the fear of the unknown of how I was going to cope with things without alcohol stop me from stopping drinking. Um, it's, it's phenomenal. I don't know how I did it because I remember, um, my sister-in-law mentioned to me one time that I was probably drinking too much and I said, well, I'd really like to quit. She goes, well, why don't you? I said, because I'm petrified. What am I going to do without the alcohol? How am I going to cope with it all? How am I going to deal with all the things, the stressors? And she didn't understand that at all because her anxiety isn't like that. Mm -hmm. And that was my biggest fear. But but when I realized that I was going to not only lose my life, but I could lose my children and my husband, um, that fear was greater than the fear of what am I going to do without the alcohol? Mm -hmm. And that's where I woke up that morning and said, I'm going to do it. And I am going to face those fears and get past the, not get past them, but, but deal with them as they come rather than just that overwhelming. I can't quit because I'm too scared. Maura, we've got listeners that are thinking about taking that plunge to stop drinking. They're ready to do it. And tell them, what was it like for you for the first 24 hours, 72 hours, the first week and month? It was it was hard. It was one of the hardest things I think I've ever done. But it was the most fulfilling thing I've ever done at the same time. I was finally in my right mind. I was finally there at work with my customers and my coworkers. I wasn't hung over every morning dragging my butt into work late every day. I was there for my kids in the morning. I was reading books at night, which I had never done before because I was always too drunk to do it. 
um, I was having conversations with my husband that I probably hadn't had in years because I was too drunk in the evening to talk to anybody or didn't want to talk to anybody. Um, I was just more tuned in, clued in to my life and to the to those around me. And yeah, I didn't go to the wine aisle of the grocery store for about the first month. I went the other way around the grocery store, so I didn't go to that area. Um, and I didn't, I couldn't be around any alcohol. You know, if it, uh, in that baseball season, my son's baseball team had a huge party at the end of the baseball season, and I um, asked a friend, a good friend, to take my son to the party because my husband was out of town, and there was just no way I could go to the party and not drink. So I kept myself out of situations I knew that were detrimental. Um, but at the same time, it was probably the most growth I've done in my entire 41 years of life was that first month, just uh, being present in my life. The most growth you've experienced in your entire 41-year life. And Maura, you did <laughs> what very few can do. And I talk about this in episode two. And if you haven't heard that yet, listeners, go back to episode two. You, more went outside your comfort zone, and sobriety and the magic is not located in your comfort zone. It's located outside your comfort zone. Now, yeah. how important is that to get outside your comfort zone when you're quitting drinking alcohol? Oh, it, you have to, because your comfort zone is in a, a glass or a bottle, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you have to, you have to, you have to go somewhere that's scary and put yourself in situations where before you could never do it without a drink. And then you put yourself in a situ any situation. I mean, just going to uh, a baseball game or going to a football game or anything for me was associated with drinking. Everywhere I went was associated with drinking. Even work to a certain degree. Not that I drank at work, but there's a lady that I work with that lives close to work. And we would just walk to her house after work. So that was also associated very easily mm -hmm. with being able to, to get to a beverage if you needed one. So when you, when you decide that you want to change this in your life, you have to go outside your comfort zone because your comfort zone is, is, the, is the booze. Absolutely. The comfort zone is in a glass bottle. I'm writing that down. <laughs> now, Maura, I did an interview with a sage and brilliant, prudent man of 24 years sobriety. And he said, the order in which destruction occurs is your spirit and your mind and then your body go. And then when you quit drinking, the recovery is actually in an opposite process. Your body heals and then your mind and then your spirit. And tell me about just the physical recuperation you've experienced. How do you feel physically after nine months? Well, physically, I feel awesome. Um, I've lost uh, 55 pounds since I quit drinking. Oh, my gosh. And I've been uh, very overweight since my kids were born and they, with all the alcohol. Um, my insulin needs are down because I'm more healthy. Um, I, my liver function is back in the normal range again, which it hasn't been in 12 years. Wow. My kidneys are still a little bit damaged, and they always will be, but they're back in the normal range for a diabetic where I, they weren't before. So I've actually reversed some of the damage that I had 
had been doing to my kidneys. And in general, um, health-wise, um, I'm exercising, I'm getting better sleep. Every, in every way, I feel, feel better. So in, with my physical self, I um, am doing very well. And, and losing weight has definitely helped my joints feel better and everything else like that because I've been very out of shape for a very long time. So physically, I'm feeling really, really good. Maura, that's 6.1 pounds per month if you've lost 55 yes. pounds. And that's probably, <laughs> that probably hasn't stopped. And congratulations no, on I'm that. Still, that's got to feel great. Still continuing to lose weight. So, And, and talk to yeah, me about it, your it, mind and your spirit. And, and that is, those things happen, you know, that will, that'll continue to heal for years yeah. to come. But tell me about your mind yeah. and spirit. Well, my, in my mind, um, I just feel like I can think clearer. I don't react to, to things as um, either happy or sad as I used to. I can actually, um, you know, think about the reaction to something rather than either uh, being mad about it or so happy or either way. And also, I'm just able to to think more clearly and to see things for what they are rather than, you know, letting something get to you that is really not that big of a deal when when you're drunk everything's uh amplified so when you're sober it's you can actually sort of keep it on a more even keel spiritually i'm still struggling um that's definitely uh a place i've always struggled in my spirituality and getting my spirit back um I feel really wonderful about myself, but I still have a lot of doubt that I'm going to be able to keep this going. And so I um, try to, I have a counselor, I, I try to go to the groups where I can start to hear other people talking and about feeling more spiritually uh, well. Because I, I still am struggling in the in the spirit department. <laughs> and, and Maura, and, and that is what I have been struggling with for the last decade is the higher power, the spirit, and how integral that is to my recovery. And if you yeah. find, I mean, let me know if, if there's something that works for you um, that I can incorporate into my recovery because I feel like that is very, very important. We have reached the lightning round. So these are qu quick answers, 20 to 30 seconds. But if you go over, no worries. Maura, okay. what was holding you back from quitting drinking? The fear of dealing with the anxiety of life without alcohol. What was your aha moment or when the light bulb went off and you finally had the courage to quit drinking? When my husband and my kids told really told me that I was checked out and not a part of the family. And when my doctor threatened to put me in the hospital because my kidneys were shutting down, I realized that I needed to change everything in my life. What is your favorite resource in recovery? And this could be a book. This could be a mobile app. It could be a 12 step program. Yeah. What, what works for you? Well, I have found after talking with you a lot of different podcasts that I like. I'm not, um, I haven't been going, I haven't gone to many AA meetings, partially because I want to be home in the evenings with my kids sure. and be doing their stuff. So it's kind of a, a scheduling conflict. 
So in the evening after the kids go to bed, I found a few different things online and I listened to people's stories to try to find, you know, different things in other people's stories that, um, that might relate to something I'm dealing with. What's the best advice in regard to drinking and quitting you've ever received? Take it one day at a time. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners? If you're, if you're thinking about or contemplating stopping drinking, realize that it will be very difficult, but it will give you so much more than you've ever had. Great stuff. And you said people's stories. And I think the, the question three, you and, and what that is more is you're not alone and yeah. I'm not alone. And I felt alone for so yeah. long for the better part of a decade. I felt like I was the only person in mid 20s. Oh, now, now my Still late 20s. Yeah. And now, <laughs> and now my early 30s that had a problem. I thought I was the only person. But Maura, you're not alone and I'm not alone. And listeners, you're not alone. And this might be a difficult concept to grasp. Maura, you, myself, and if you're listening to this podcast, you're one of the lucky ones because you're starting to realize you're looking into recovery. There are 3 million people on this planet that die every year to alcohol. They go on to the bitter end, but we are in our recovery and we're making strides for a better life. Now, Maura, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. You are so welcome. Thank you. You might be an alcoholic if, and this one's from Tommy in Norway. You might be an alcoholic if you extend your business trip a couple days to continue your drinking. This one I absolutely love. And again, these are emailed to me at info at recoveryelevator.com from listeners just like you. This one's from Robert. You might be an alcoholic if, after listening to each episode of the Recovery Elevator podcast, you delete it from your iPhone just in fear that people might see it and realize you're an alcoholic. That's probably one of my favorites, Robert. Thank you for that. I'd like to give a shout out to Shelly, who got in contact with us on the Recovery Elevator Facebook page, Creating Accountability. She said, I've got one day and nine hours of sobriety. So Shelly in Hawaii, good luck. You can do this. On next week's podcast, we're going to hear from Maggie. Hopefully, we are going to hear from Maggie. Fingers crossed that she made it to Denver and she is back. Now, Maggie was on podcast episode 10 and she is in early recovery and she's taking a trip to Denver. And we're going to see if she made it through sober. I hope she does, but we're going to find out. Thanks for taking the time to listen. You took the elevator down. You're taking the stairs back up. You can do this. 